welcome to Landon Wall and Witty on the road to Qatar. I'm Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. We've got reaction from Landon Donovan, Chris Whittingham, and me to the U.S. men's national team's 2-0 loss at Canada on World Cup qualifying match day 10. Landon is back home in San Diego. Witty is in South Florida. I'm in Burlington, Ontario, where I'm writing for my Substack newsletter, which you should sign up for free or paid at grantwall.com to get my posts in your inbox. Guys, it's good to be with you. How are you? Uh, do we have to answer that? <laughs> Grant, I'm honestly, the, for me, the silver lining of the day was that you were able to get into Canada. When last I spoke to you, you were concerned about your ability to travel and be at the game. You promised your fine Substack subscribers, you'd be at every game, and thus far you have delivered. Congratulations on getting into Canada and covering this game. Yeah, really glad I got to see that. Um, <laughs> 90% of Life Boys is showing up, remember that, and so I did show up for this game, but it's the second U.S. loss in qualifying. It leaves them in second place, four points now behind Canada, tied with Mexico, but better on goal difference. Mexico dropping points at home in the Azteca to Costa Rica in a nil-nil draw. But the kind of worrying aspect is that Panama did win. And so now the U.S. is just one point ahead of that fourth place Panama spot, which is, as of right now, that's the playoff spot that the U.S. does not want to be in. You want to finish in the top three and get the automatic World Cup bid. And this was a game where Canada gets the early goal and the U.S. has a ton of possession, not that many great chances, and then pushes forward. And right at the end, Canada gets the second on the break. Landon, initial thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts. So we can start with the game. It was almost exactly what I've, I would have expected it to look like now. You're not expecting to give up a goal after seven minutes, hopefully. And that absolutely changed the complexion of the game. It allowed Canada to do exactly what they wanted. But my biggest takeaway, every time they cut to Herdman on the sideline, it was be harder, be aggressive, get stuck in. This was not about soccer today. Canada came into this game saying, this is not about soccer. They played on turf, on a small field for a reason. And... Teams were pretty even as far as talent goes, but Canada just, honestly, I hate to say that, they just seemed like they wanted it more. That That's like my overwhelming, simple 30,000-foot view takeaway. They just felt like they wanted it more. They were nastier. The ref didn't help in that he let a lot go on, uh, but that played into Canada's hands, and you have to give them credit. They deserve to win. And when you watch the games, which I have, I've covered a lot of Mexican football the last couple of years. The matches refereed by Cesar Arturo Ramos look like that. Like they're they're very loose. There's a lot of heavy challenges. There's a lot. There's a lot of play on. And I mean, there were several situations where I mean, you're watching on television. You're going, that's, I mean, that's at least a foul, isn't it? Like there was a couple of yellow card offenses that weren't given as, as fouls. And you're right, Landon. That helped play right into Canada's hands. And you know, I, we should say before we break down every minute detail of the U.S. performance, what a significant moment it is for Canada to get a win against the U.S. It feels like the kind of closing of the loop where it begins with their win against the U.S. in the Nations League and it closes with being top of the qualifying region by several points. They look almost certain to go to the World Cup now. And 
it's an incredible story for them. But from a U.S. standpoint, my feeling was I I thought the U.S. was going to get a goal. I thought the U.S. played pretty well. But the thing that sticks out from what you mentioned in your intro, Grant, is, well, the U.S., they had a lot of the play, but they didn't create a lot of chances. And the thing that's frustrating to me is that the U.S. only have 13 goals from 10 World Cup qualifying games. And I just thought this generation of U.S. talent would have created a lot more by now. We can probably compare it to previous rounds of the Hex, and they would have had more than 13 goals in 10 games. It's not good enough from a goal-scoring standpoint. So whether it's system, whether it's players, it's just not enough going forward. Grant, did you feel, in in the stadium, you felt like the U.S. were going to score, you said? I didn't feel like the U.S. had that many golden chances. There was basically one. Weston McKenney's header off the Pulisic corner kick late in the first half. Really nice save by the sweatpants goalkeeper. (laughs) And other than that, there really weren't any great chances for the U.S. And and so it's one thing to say, as Greg Berhalter did after the game, we dominated. I've basically never seen a result or a, a game that we've dominated on the road that didn't get a result like this. And yet... My response to that is, well, that's partly due to the game state, right? Canada got an early goal in this game and then retreated. And so they let the U.S. have possession. But in the final third, there really wasn't much created by this U.S. team in terms of chances. There were shots. There weren't many shots on goal. And so I get the whole idea of analyzing the performance more than the result and why we do that. But I actually don't know if the performance was that great or at least as great as Greg Berhalter is making it sound. I think it was it was very good in certain aspects, right? I think they had Canada pinned for long stretches in their own half, which is good. I have no problem, and we talk about with with San Diego Loyal all the time. I Every Monday when I come in, I talk about performance over the result. Now, in a World Cup qualifying cycle, screw, screw the performance, right? You need the result. So you, you just, as long as you don't have it both ways, right? So we can't say, well, the El Salvador performance was terrible, but we got the result. It's fine. And I'm not suggesting Greg is saying that. You just have to, if you're going to be consistent with performance is what matters, then that's okay then performance is what matters, uh, but don't just throw away the results part. One thing that I think, tell me if you agree with this, guys, Canada, what separates Canada from the rest of CONCACAF is they have a few attacking pieces that are just difference makers. And at our best, when Christian's at his best, we have that as well. But right now, Canada, between David, Laren, Ugbo, they didn't even put Cavallini on the field. I mean, there's another guy that they're just different. I mean, Mexico, Raul Jimenez is good. Uh, Costa Rica, no. Honduras, no. El Salvador, no. Jamaica with Michael Antonio can pull off a play here and there. But they just have they just have guys up front that can make special plays, and that's what's separating them. And they're without a couple as well. When you look at you know without Tejon Buchanan, or I'm sorry, without Alfonso Davies, even Yusakio, sure. he's not he's not a great attacking player, but he helps them in build up. Uh, yeah, I mean, and the thing that's disappointing, the reason why I'm disappointed overall in the U.S. attack, even though again I like certain aspects of the performance, is uh, Brendan Aronson's out there, and you know we get all excited, all oh, leads are bidding twenty seven million dollars for Brendan Aronson. That's incredible, and yet I don't really think he made a difference on the game. 
And I don't think that a lot of the guys that played today, you know, they turned to, I actually thought the biggest difference maker came off the bench was Paul Ariola, who's a player that a lot of the fans don't really like very much or don't want to see play very much. But is it Gio Reyna that's got to come back and add that, you know, attacking difference maker? Uh, Did one of these strikers got to come through? Because I, I didn't see in moments where, all right, the U.S. is in good position that they could take advantage of the situations they were in. I didn't know how the, I don't know how the U.S. is going to score goals, which, yeah. which for me, and and I I just ran the numbers. So uh, in in this qualifying cycle, they're on 13 goals. In 2018, when they didn't qualify, they're they're on 17 goals after 10 games. 14 in 2014, they had 15 goals. In 2010, they had 19. In 2006, they had 16. And 2002, they had 11. So. When, you know, in theory, part of the project of U.S. soccer is developing the style, creating more attacking chances, bringing through better players. They have not scored more goals as a result of it thus far in qualifying. And I I don't know what the issue is there. I appreciate the statistical uh, research there, Witty. Uh, (laughs) It's useful stuff. I did some of my own, actually. I'm going to give away a little bit of what I'm writing about in my story for Monday morning. But... You remember back in October when Ricardo Pepe scored twice against Jamaica and he, at that point, only played two games for the U.S. and he had three goals? Well, those three goals in those two games are the only three goals that a U.S. center forward has scored in these 10 World Cup qualifiers. Wow. And, you you know, so I, I went... In, I sort of broke down how many goals from the center forward position, how many from wingers, how many from midfielders, and how many from fullbacks. Well, interestingly, you know, there's three goals from fullbacks, including Robinson, Jedi, the other night. Um, zero goals from center backs, which is reflective of the set piece failures to score uh, in this tournament so far. And I, I just feel like not only are goals not coming from the center forward position, but the crossing hasn't been very good to put the center forwards in a position to score. And there was a moment you mentioned Brendan Aronson today, and and I don't want to pick on him too much because I don't think he was like the reason the U.S. lost, but transitions, this idea of if you win the ball in the opposing half, there was one moment in the second half when I'm like, flailing my arms in the press box saying, go, go, go. You're a Red Bull player. This should be second nature to you. And he sort of hit a, a back pass out of it. That and happened several times. I was just really surprised. It, it, it just, it didn't make any sense to me. Do you guys remember early on, I think it was the El Salvador game. I think it was the El Salvador game. We talked a lot about how you put teams under pressure. And if you if you don't have a striker or some attacking players who can do that, Christian in his best moments can. Weston, who I think has been unequivocally the best U.S. player, club and country for the last month and a half, can. Um, but we don't have a striker that can take the ball on their own and score a goal. And so how do you put teams under real pressure? Set pieces can be one. Um, the best chance of the second half, the only chance I can remember of the second half was, I think it was Weston who who was really overloading the left side of the field in the second half. I think just clipped a ball and it got headed through to Ariola, who chests it and bikes it and it almost goes in. But it's just because you put the ball in the box and you put them under pressure. So having possession outside 30 yards from goal is great, but eventually you have to put them under pressure. And I watched 
I watched the whole Mexico-Costa Rica game. It was the same thing with Mexico. Mexico had all the ball, 35 yards from goal, and they never put Costa Rica under pressure with service in the box, putting bodies in front of goal, taking shots, creating chances that way. So if you don't do that, it's going to, and you don't have somebody who can score a special goal, and you don't have somebody who can just bulldoze through and make some chances, it's going to be really hard. And it screams out, I mean, this is maybe the furthest thing from everyone's mind, but guys like Daryl DK, maybe PFOC, guys like that who, again, I'm, I don't have all the context because I'm not watching these guys every day, but a guy who just puts you under pressure with physicality or a moment of skill where you can pull off a special play really helps in games like this. And we just didn't have any of that the last couple games. We're also talking about potentially center forward option number five and six because PFOC did start a game in that first window, but we haven't seen Daryl DK yet. And we're basically saying, well, let's just keep bringing a striker in until one works. And I think that might ignore something of a systemic issue because one of the things that Greg Berhalter came into the U.S. men's national team job with the reputation of is at Columbus, he had... Ola Kamara and Giassi Zardes and was able to get them goals. At least, I would probably say 15. I'll look up the numbers here as we talk. But at least 15 goals on the basis of how they generated chances on, you know, pullbacks and, you know, Harrison Offal getting forward for Columbus. And, you know, like the Milton Valenzuela towards the end was a really good signing for them. Like getting them forward and figuring out ways to score goals with the chances that they created. And it's just a bit turgid right now. And you're right, Landon. I, I think we should, you know, kind of stop here and mention Weston McKenney's tremendous play because you know there's a couple moments on the touchline where he's kind of got a balance he's drawing two defenders works his way around him gets the header you know fair play to Milan Borjan for making a great save but you know he he's in that position and you trust him in those positions I was stunned when the ball didn't go in when it was him rising to win the header we've seen him score those goals for freaking Juventus week in and week out so why wouldn't he do it there but the goalkeeper makes a great save it was right at him but you know, again, it's just there aren't enough Weston McKennies out there. And, you know, once Tyler Adams went out, then you had Chris Richards come off and, you know, pretty devastating news to hear that it's a foot injury that could potentially be a broken foot, affects his form at club level, and all of a sudden that's impacting the March window. Um, and, you know, then the injury stuff starts to cascade from there, and you're kind of left wondering, well, where are the options going to come from? But you're right. I mean, I, I think DK might be the option, but that's the sixth striker that the U.S. will have used in this octagonal. Well, he's actually hurt. Right now, oh, that's so right. Yeah, he he won't be for a little while, uh, unfortunately. Um, yeah, the U.S. has started five different players at center forward in these ten games, uh, and so that's certainly a position that they, they they still haven't found exactly what they're looking for there. I don't think. A couple things I want to mention really quick: being in the stadium, one, the cold weather wasn't an issue. You know, I don't think. Uh, you know, it was cold. Uh, I keep like wearing like 10 layers to these games like I did in Columbus the other night and then I get to the press box and it's like <laughs> it's like he, it's like like heated and so I end up like pulling off like eight layers it's it, I'm a clown <laughs> show at this point but the atmosphere is very cool in the stadium you know just the Canadian fans this is literally the best story in my opinion on the planet in World Cup qualifying Canada is going to make the World Cup They've only made one before in 1986. This was a team that 10 years ago uh, went out of qualifying before even getting to the final round, losing eight to one at Honduras, where they won the other night. And so they didn't even have 
their best player, Alfonso Davies. I mean, like th- that's incredible to me. Like I know Chris mentioned that. Like and and they just handled this situation extremely well. Landon, I want to ask you about Christian Pulisic. Uh, we talked about sort of off the field stuff with him the other day with you, but in terms of on the field, what would you like to see him doing right now that in this game in particular he wasn't doing enough of? This seems to me like the classic, um, you want to get your best players on the field, but sometimes the mix isn't right. And so your best 11 players doesn't always make your best team. And right now, the from my view, the challenge right now is how do you get Musa and Christian on the field together with Weston and Tyler? And that, that to me is the biggest challenge in a meaningful way. Christian, any way you slice it, he wants to be inside and central. And you want him there because you want him in front of the goal eventually because he's I think he's the best U.S. player in front of goal. So how do you do that in a way that you're not minimizing what Musa has been so good at the last two games with Tyler and Weston? And that's a challenge. That's really challenging for for coaches I'm learning is how do you try to get those best players on the field? Or do you play a guy who's not as talented, maybe an Ariola? who gives you more in a different way, right? And all those pieces have to match like a puzzle or else you get some flawed performances. And so I think that's the biggest challenge right now. Christian's applying himself. He cares. He's trying. It just seems there was a point in the second half where I was like, God, is Musa still on the field? I didn't even realize. Or Aronson. I didn't even realize if they were on the field or not. And it's because there's a little bit of... um deferring to Christian when he's on the field, as should be the case because he's so talented. You want to get him the ball. Uh, but those guys have kind of seemed to to fall into the shadows a little bit. And, and that's a challenge that Greg and his staff have to figure out is how do you get all those guys either on the field at the same time or how do you utilize one of them and bring the other off the bench and, and be successful that way. And Eunice has done a decent job of operating from deeper lying areas. I, I agree. The the one thing and for me it's more it's most symbolized in the fact that he is taking free kicks and corners when I don't necessarily think he is the best US free kick taker, and I don't think he's the best US corner taker. They're trying to kind of get him his touches as if this were basketball, right? Get his usage rate up so that the ball and I, I, I just and, and it's and it's might be critical or it might be kind of derisive language, but I think he like just have him be a role player and and have everyone be a role player and you know kind of land in what you're saying of well get him the ball more and you want him on the ball more well I, I think in some ways like Christian might be the one who sometimes even when he plays well goes ten minutes without you noticing him I think that might be. Because, again, everyone is trying to elevate their role from where they are at club to where they are for country. And Christian is going from, you know, when he plays for Chelsea, he's just a guy on the field who's trying to execute a role. And now he's trying to take the, you know, be Messi, be, you know, whoever the star player of a team team is. And I think that might be miscast. I just don't know how you wind that down when he's kind of been the prodigy for four and five years now. He was playing at 17 in World Cup qualifiers and playing well was important for those U.S. teams to wind that down and be like, no, hey, trust Weston, trust Yunus Musa, trust whoever the striker is, and just do your job. And I honestly, I think that job is more in wider areas, but we can kind of debate where that job is. But I think the more that you kind of get him his touches, the more you kind of put that burden on him, the more that he feels like he's got to carry it. 
And I just don't think that the U.S. operate well when he's carrying it. I think the U.S. operates well when he's part of a team. Yeah, he also gets he also gets kicked a lot more when he's that's true when he's got the ball a lot, right? That's he true. just gets destroyed. It's it's criminal sometimes. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that seventy five percent of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over thirty five, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Landon, as a coach, would you consider sitting, benching, Christian Pulisic? You have to have all the context, right? And I always, I always use that word, but it's so relevant because Greg and the staff are having conversations with him and others throughout the week. Physically, where's he at right now? You know, he hadn't played a game in a few weeks. So now you play back to back with travel. Can you go again at a high level? And is, you know, an 80% physically uh, Christian Pulisic better than somebody else at 100%? You have to weigh all that. And then just emotionally where he's at too, mentally where he's at, you have to gauge all that. So, of course, you consider everything. I mean, the, the goal is to get to the World Cup. It's not about trying to get someone minutes or touches. It's about getting to the World Cup. So, whatever that takes, you do. But there's obviously a lot of nuance in how you do that and how you phrase that. I mean, there was a time I remember very vividly, um, Bob Bradley, I think, sat, I know he sat me because I remember being on the bench, but I think Clint too. I think we were both on the bench for one game for different reasons, but I wasn't playing well. And it was, you know, he just had to make the move. And I think it was in a gold cup. And he just said this, sorry, you know, this is, this is the decision. And, and it was a good wake up call. And it's sometimes that helps a player too to uh, take some pressure off too, right? I mean, Honduras, let's, I mean, as we move ahead and think big picture, if you can't beat Honduras at home, we do not deserve to go to a World Cup. I'm, you know, that's not to put pressure on the team, right? It's just, that's the reality. You, everybody has beaten Honduras everywhere. So if you can't beat them at home, you shouldn't be going to a World Cup. So maybe, maybe it's a chance to just bring him in late in the game when Honduras are tired after a three-game week and and give him a chance to score a goal and get some confidence again. Chris, where are you on how fans should be looking at things right now? Because, there, look, I'm on Twitter. There's certainly a section of the fan base that is extremely angry, you know, like fire Greg and all that stuff after a loss like today. And, you know, this game is a big deal, right? Even a bigger deal on Wednesday because the U.S. lost today. How concerned are you? How concerned should fans actually be? In some ways, I feel a little bit bad almost about like how patronizing I feel towards Canada because I should be really upset at like how this rivalry is going to develop here because Canada, like, you know, I don't want to say it was a smash and grab because they got the goal early. It felt like an executed game plan as opposed to they just got a goal late or whatever. But 
Canada, we should treat them as legit one. And, and that, I think, is a little bit disrespectful. We lost to Canada? No, Canada's awesome. Like, they're a really good team that knows who they are and knows how they're going to win games. And actually, I think even if they get to the World Cup, have a better style against the top-level opposition that they will come up against. They're going to cause teams some problems if they execute their game plan in this way at the World Cup. But I think that portion of the fan base is always ready to pounce, particularly on Burhalter and some of the players that he picks. My, my feeling is what I've, what I've kind of been banging on about with this podcast is their inability to score goals. And I, I, I really thought that, not that this would be easier, but that they would be able to at least score goals and they, they actually might have problems defensively. I thought today, other than Miles Robinson slipping in the sixth minute, which that whole sequence is bad from Matt Turner's goal kick to Miles Robinson slipping, I thought the rest of the game they were good defensively. I specifically want to point out Sergino Des' performance. I thought he was fantastic today from a defensive point of view. One moment faces up. Yeah, yeah. yeah from from He faces up Tejon Buchanan 1v1, and that's the nightmare scenario. Tejon Buchanan, I don't think, is usually a left-sided player. I think they specifically put him there to run at Serginho Dest and didn't really cause him that many problems today, I didn't think. But really, for me, the overall feeling is, number one, offense in the attack, they're just not good enough. And number two, the striker situation. And I know that's kind of a very common U.S. thing, but my feeling is that Pepe should start and you know you, you give him a go and you trust him that he's going to work through whatever he's not going whatever he's not working on right now and i don't i just don't think that Giassi Zardes is of this level and and we saw this today we saw him play in a previous away game and you feel bad saying that about somebody and i actually kind of came to appreciate him a little bit more when i saw him in person play for columbus at inter miami and oh i i kind of get it but I just don't think he's of this level. And I, I don't think that he should start a game for the U.S. And, and frankly, I don't think he should be in the U.S. squad. I think the U.S. have enough strikers where they can pick other players in that position. And I just, you saw it today. I, I, what did he offer? I, I, don't, I don't think he provided you very much. And fans get frustrated when you pick players that aren't difference makers, particularly in those spots. The point I would make here with that is I'm surprised that Pepe hasn't started either one of these games this window. And I'm also surprised that the guys who have started, Ferreira and Zardes, their teams didn't even make the playoffs in MLS. So these guys have not played club games in nearly three months. And I just have a very hard time believing that they are going you know, to, to bring more to the table from the start than Pepe will. And Pepe's been playing regularly over the last month, or at least to some extent for his club. He should be in better form. I, I just don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I want to take a moment, a U.S. soccer appreciation moment here. <laughs> we had a U.S. striker score two goals in the Premier League last week or two weekends ago and he's not even on the roster and that's not a not that's not I'm not saying that was should or shouldn't have happened I'm just saying think about how far we have come as a soccer country that a guy that scored twice in the Premier League is not even on our World Cup qualifying roster so that's if pretty he had amazing. Sco- if he had scored that brace 10 days before the camp he would have been called in and he would have would have started against El Salvador I'm 100% certain of that and, and he's playing for a a real top team in Norwich, oh, right, Grant? They play some beautiful <laughs> stuff, don't they? Oh, beautiful football. <laughs> Can we, uh, let's dive into the big picture. I mean, I, I remember after, not the previous window where they where the U.S. team, we played twice. The one before that in Panama, we're starting to 
create separation with the the other big three, Canada, us, and Mexico. And that has seemed to continue now. I, I didn't know if Panama could keep that up, but there's starting to be some real separation. And now Costa Rica have... Yeah, they're, they they're, at, they're at the Jamaica gap. on Wednesday. They're at Jamaica. So if they win that game, they really start to close the gap too. So we talk about games and ha- now you get to the point with four games left where you're trying to figure out where are you getting the points from, right? And for us, it's absolutely have to have three here. Then you get at, at Mexico, Mexico, Yep, home to Panama, who will very much be alive in any circumstance, and then at Costa Rica, who may still be alive as well. And so now it gets real tricky. So this game on Wednesday, I cannot stress how vital it is. And I expect that we will win the game and get three points. But there is, I, I think it's hard to come back if you don't win this game. A couple of things to think about. Honduras has been eliminated now from World Cup qualifying after losing at home to El Salvador. Honduras has yet to win a game. Um, So not a lot to play for for Honduras. The third game of the window, the Central American countries have really struggled with these three-game windows, just with fitness and just being totally overloaded. And I do want to ask you, Landon, because we actually didn't end up addressing it in the last podcast, The temperature in St. Paul, Minnesota is predicted to be, during the game, two degrees. And that's not even getting into wind chills. This was a choice by U.S. soccer, which could have put this game in Jacksonville or Nashville or Austin or wherever, um, and chose to put it in St. Paul, Minnesota. What are your thoughts on that decision? I think it was the right decision. I know you disagree with me, but given everything at stake, so now what you do is... You prepare the team, although the team prepared in Phoenix, but the U.S. players prepared in Phoenix. They went to Columbus for a week. They are very used to the weather. They go to Canada, used to it. Come to Minnesota, used to it. It will not be a shock. Honduras, on the other hand, it will be like it'll be like walking onto walking into a, a nice an ice bath, right? I mean, they will have no idea what that feels like and what that's like until they get here. And the other piece that I think is crucial is the travel piece. And when you think about, look, the U.S. had Honduras, the third game of a window when they played away in Honduras. And you remember the second half of that game? And Honduras absolutely just hit the wall. And the U.S. were very good, and they just kept going. We just kept going and going and pounding them until they broke. And that is a huge factor in this. So Honduras has a ton of travel. I'm guessing from Hamilton to Minnesota, it can't be more than an hour or so. And that makes a big difference. So I think it's the right move, although playing on a nice big field in warm weather right now is probably pretty enticing to Greg and his staff against the tired Honduras team. But I still think that's a decision I probably would have made the same way. But when, so the the, the thing is, is that, so we're talking about all these factors that are going to be going against Honduras where they have lost two in a row. They have yet to win. They're going through a bad situation. They actually didn't start with Albert Ellis and Romo Kyoto today. They brought him off. They brought him on at halftime. I don't know what they're saving legs for, considering that they were eliminated from the World Cup today. But do you guys think that this is going to be easy on Wednesday? Because I can't foresee no. any. I, I can't foresee any U.S. game being easy. Like I, I just don't. I don't have the confidence in them. Like I kind of feel like it's going to be nil nil after sixty minutes, and they'll have a counterattacking chance that Matt Turner is going to have to make a save or not. And then they can maybe go on from there and win. But I, I just don't, I don't think this is going to be easy. Well, it's not about it, it's not about it being easy for the 
for us. It's just it's qualifying, and and yes, Honduras are eliminated, so I think there's you get a slight let off there. But I don't know. There might be a bunch of Honduran fans who make their way to Minnesota, and like they're proud. They are very proud. Not to mention, if they play a sort of second tier group against the U.S. This is essentially a World Cup final for a lot of those players who want to be seen by MLS clubs or USL clubs, right, by playing against us. And so there could absolutely be a scenario where they throw out eight or nine new players and it'll be a battle for us. It's not, that will not be easy. I will say this. I do think that, and this is extreme temperatures, right? So this isn't like 25 degrees, 30 degrees in Columbus the other night. Like wind chills well below zero, that's a completely different deal. And I, and I do think that the more you muck up the conditions, um, there's less of a, uh, a gap between the two teams. That's my personal feeling. The last two times these two teams played in World Cup qualifying in the U.S., the U.S. won 6-0. I don't think this game will be 6-0. I do think the U.S., especially in the second half, should have a significant stamina advantage. So they could pull away like they did down in Honduras on the third game of that window. But Although that um, depends, Grant, on that depends on who, who starts for us and who starts for Honduras. It could be the opposite. I mean, if, if Greg rolls out eight or nine of the same guys again and Honduras have eight or nine guys who are fit with their club teams but haven't played in five or six days, that could that could flip the script a little bit. Well, and personnel-wise, you've got potentially Tyler Adams' injury situation. Strained hamstring was what Burhalter said after the game. He said they didn't know about yet details on the foot situation of Chris Richards. And he also said that Walker Zimmerman, they were going to play, but he had a hamstring situation. So we'll see how many guys are going to actually be available and if Berhalter will have to dip into his roster a little bit more than he has so far. Yeah, I mean, it could be Acosta in midfield with Mark McKenzie at center back and that all of a sudden becomes a little bit of a different proposition. And yet I kind of wouldn't be surprised. I mean, maybe those guys with fresh legs like are the play here just to, you know, get numbers on the field and you can have some more of that attacking and going forward and playing more direct play. Um, I, I, I don't, I honestly don't know what the answer is just in terms of like, do you want those fresh legs? Should they be trying to play the ball with their feet more and keep it on the ground and play the beautiful game? Or should they be trying to, as Landon said, get numbers in the box, pump crosses in and, and try and just try and, you know, swarm a team like, I just don't know what the answer is going forward, but I mean, those are those are big absences. I mean, no Zimmerman, no Richards, and no Tyler Adams, and all of a sudden, you know, particularly your ability to put out fires um, when you know if Honduras breaks, which you know is the only way that they can score goals is if they break on the counter, particularly with a player like Albert Ellis. You were going through Landon earlier the list of attackers. I think Ellis is one of those guys um, who, if you give him space on the counter, can take advantage and really make you pay. Um, but I mean, you don't. I don't. I don't feel great. I don't feel great heading heading into Wednesday. Um, now maybe they win. Mexico beats Panama. You've got that four point gap restored. You head into the next window, basically saying if you beat Panama at home, you're automatically into the World Cup. And so it can flip just that quickly. But at the moment, it's just you're on a knife's edge, and that's not where you no, want Panama's, it to be after ten games. Panama's away, right? Uh, now it's Pan- home in Orlando. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Mexico away, then Panama home. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I'm just this is the point where you're starting to do the math now. And we'll have a lot. We'll have a much clearer picture on Wednesday. But you, uh, you never want to leave this down to certainly not the last game, and ideally not the last two. And uh, as we saw last time in Trinidad. 
away at Costa Rica has been a house of horrors for the U.S., so you don't want anything out of that last day. I mean, actually, I, I honestly think based off of like previous history, the U.S. might be more likely to get something out of Azteca than they are to get yeah. something at Costa Rica, which is ridiculous to say, but um, I, I, I think they can maybe sneak a point there. So I'm kind of looking at seven points on the run in here. There's one last thing I want to ask, Land about Clint Dempsey, Hall of Fame announced today he will be going in as a first ballot Hall of Famer. What do you think about your old teammate? Fully deserved. Uh, congrats to Hope Solo and Shannon Box as well. But you would have to be a moron not to have that guy as a first ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> one of the best. One of the best I ever played with. Awesome. Well, guys, uh, always good to talk to you, even after a U.S. loss. And we'll see if they can turn it around on Wednesday. Thanks for coming on the show, as always. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.